Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey everybody, it's T with the UFOs want to tell you something. This week, we're going to go into Whitley Strieber's Communion Part 2. We're going to cover missing time, odd entities, Whitley coming to terms with the experience, coping with it, and trying to figure out what's behind it. Alright, let's get it. We pick up from our last episode with Whitley under hypnosis, with Dr. Klein and Bud Hopkins. At this point, he's reliving a situation that happened to him from when he was 12 years old. Please excuse my voice acting skills, I don't really have them. For the entity, I try to be a little more monotone, but for the most part, everybody else kind of sounds similar, so please bear with me on that. Where are you? Dr. Klein asked Whitley. I was sitting up in bed and everyone was asleep. Oh, there's a bunch of beds. I'm sitting on a chair. Just this gray thing in front of me. What is it? It's got red spots on it. I'm tired. I feel sick. Do you want to go home? The entity asked Whitley. I don't care if you never take me home again, said Whitley. You have to go back home, replied the visitor. Who are all those people? They're all soldiers. What do you do to them? We look over them and send them home. Why do you look so awful? I can't help that. Where did you find my sister? She's just down the hall. Whitley then saw his father standing, and he appeared to be quite conscious. Daddy, don't be scared, Daddy. Come on, Daddy. It's all right. Whitty, it's not all right. It's not all right. Oh, God, what is it? I don't know what it is either, Daddy. How did you get up here, Daddy? He then wakes from his hypnosis session and ponders. We were on a train, he said. Were we on a train? Whitley was frightened and said, Something happened to my father. Bud Hopkins then asked him, You said something about your sister. Yeah, my sister was there with us. At this point, Whitley became confused, stating that he remembers saying he was 12 again during the regression. Then I remember seeing that thing again. That same thing I saw when... Just as he spoke, Bud Hopkins interrupted and said, What was the thing? The thing is a... Well, I keep saying it's a woman, but it's a thing. But I saw her on the train. What in the world is all this about? Because I seem to remember seeing her on a train, but it's not a train. Your father was there? Yeah, he was there. And he was scared to death. And when he got scared, I got scared. 
And there were a whole bunch of soldiers there too. Regular soldiers. And they had uniforms. They were all lying on tables. No. They were beds. But they were solid, no legs. You were allowed to sit up? I was sitting up very excited. Next thing I knew, I saw my father, and I was terrified because he was so scared. I'm talking about memories that didn't happen on a train, obviously, am I not? Did I say it happened? I'm very confused here. I don't know what the hell is going on. What made you say train? I don't know. No, we were on a train. We were on the train, and I'll tell you, was the goddamnedest thing. When we were on the train, we ended up in this thing. When we were on the train. Whitley then explains that they were on their way back from Madison, Wisconsin in 1957 on a train. All of a sudden, he was sitting up in bed and seeing soldiers. He then states that he doesn't remember moving. That's the thing that's funny about it. I remember being in one place and then another place. It's the damnedest thing. When he saw his father, his father was terrified and Whitley could hear him very faintly screaming. And as Whitley heard that, it terrified him. It just went right through me. When daddy was scared, I was just scared to death. Whitley then elaborates on this trip, and that he does in fact remember that this trip took place, and that something in fact happened to Whitley on this trip because he fell sick and his father in fact had to take care of him, and was actually struggling to do so. There was something you were describing as if you'd seen it before. You know what I saw before? The woman. Yep, the same person. That occurs in hypnosis. We have these spontaneous age shifts. Frequently what will happen is that somebody will under hypnosis see something that they've seen before or something like it. And the age shift will occur, said Dr. Klein. What about this thing about the woman, Bud Hopkins asked. This is just so strange. We're going to have to talk about this another time because I just need to rest. As Whitley left, he was very confused about entering an unknown region of his mind. He struggles with himself, thinking even more that perhaps he still suffers from some rare psychiatric disorder. He also struggles with the notion that his whole life might have been preceded by hidden agendas. One of the two scenarios had to be true. Whitley goes on to state that Dr. Klein found that he was sane. So this gave Whitley a little bit of comfort, but the thought still hadn't left his mind that this may be, in fact, a rare psychiatric disorder. Whitley was haunted by the eyes, those limitless, eternal eyes glaring into him. Whitley shut himself into his office. He sat down, crossing his legs on the floor in order to relax and compose himself. And as soon as he relaxed, Whitley goes on to say it was like opening a hatch into another world. Whitley was finally coming to terms with the phenomena. He sat at his desk and he speculated about their origins. 
He went over time travel, the dead, perhaps they were gods or fairies. He talks about how they were bug-like, in the sense of their movements, and the big black eyes, and it seemed as if they had something almost like a hive mind, perhaps. But he did not feel that the abductors were hostile, and even notes that they seemed somewhat frightened of him as well. Finally, around 3 o'clock in the morning, Whitley went to bed, exhausted. He had no dreams that night. He awoke and realized that he had to figure out to a degree what was happening to him. One question puzzled Whitley. Was he a victim or was he mad? Whitley knew the might of the abductors, but he didn't know of their motives, and that frightened Whitley. But Whitley did not hate them, but wanted to remain objective about them and their motives, even if they were from inside the mind rather than from the universe. Whitley goes on to say that they represented a real living force was hard to dispute, but that this force may essentially be human in origin remained a definite possibility. The emotional response was to real people, albeit non-human ones. He thought about the one he called the woman. She had those amazing electrifying eyes. Neither a pupil nor an iris. There was a structure of perhaps bones under the skin. Other parts almost seemed to be like an exoskeleton on a bug. He felt as if he had no personal freedom when he was with this entity. He could not speak, nor could he move, of his own will. Due to his regression and jumping back to the incident in 1957, Whitley questioned why this happened, and he had to revise what had happened throughout his life, and he had become very uneasy after a very careful inventory of his past. As an experiment, he decided to return to his past and see what he could come up with. He talks about the trip with his father. His father took Whitley and his sister to go see their aunt and the family. One week later, they headed home. Whitley notes that the room with the soldiers was just as clear as the train car that he was in. The train was going through thick pine woods all around. The windows were dark, rushing through the night. He always remembered it this way, but never questioned why he saw it this way, and why from this position. He never remembered being taken from the train. But then he goes into his illness, and how it had begun in the middle of the night, and ended in the morning suddenly. After they arrived home, Whitley actually felt better. Whitley then talks about an odd memory of a wolf howling, seeing one on the roadside, and even talked about having this memory and mentioning it before as he was a child, but he knew he didn't actually see a wolf or even hear the actual howl. Was it one of these screen memories Whitley pondered? Whitley says that he has many peculiar stories like the one about the wolf 
all pertaining to animals, but not always. Others, in fact, were far more disturbing. I remember being terrified as a little boy by an appearance of Mr. Peanut, and yet I knew I never saw Mr. Peanut, except on the planter's cam. Whitley goes on to state that now that he can recall these situations, the encounter seemed to when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply completely ended. He questions if some events in 1986 that were strange events had some relevance into his inquiry of the past. On March 21st, he awoke in the middle of the night, unable to move or even open his eyes. I had the distinct impression there was something in my left nostril and that it was being slowly moved up far up my nose. He heard a loud pop, like an apple crunching between his eyes. The next thing he knew, he woke up, and that day his nose hurt. There was a little blood, but his wife and his son had experienced similar issues the week prior. This was due to a cold that they had had, and possible dry sinuses. But Whitley never got the cold. He didn't think about this incident until July 1986. He received a letter from Dr. Klein. In the letter, Dr. Klein was telling Whitley that his experiences had many of the same symptoms that consist with an abnormal temporal lobe, or temporal lobe epilepsy. The method of testing this would be a nasal probe. People with temporal lobe epilepsy report deja vu, unexplained panic states, strong smells, preconceptions with strong philosophical and cosmic concerns, and visual hallucinatory journeys. Whitley grabbed onto this and he thought it could be. But the more research he did, he realized that that didn't seem to be the answer. Because temporal lobe epilepsy didn't explain the physical after effects, the overwhelming sense of real connected with the experiences or the eyewitnesses. This was no more a suitable hypothesis than the visitors themselves. Regardless, Whitley went and had two tests done for temporal lobe epilepsy and both cases came back negative. He was of normal function but after that, Whitley had another incident that opened the doors to his past. On Friday, February 7th, he was in the city, staying in his New York apartment with his family. He was frantic with an awful feeling. He could feel them, smell them, a distinct odor of smoldering cardboard, and it was familiar from the past, and smelt it as well and they both had many times before. 
there was another odd odor, as if of cheese and cinnamon. He remembered this odor from the incident on the 26th of December. He remained in bed, sleepless and sweaty. Four hours had passed without his noticing. It was 12 o'clock, and he was reading. He turned the page, and when he saw, all of the sudden it was 4 a.m. on his clock. And he was no longer wearing his pajamas. He woke up to two little triangles that were incised into his forearm. One large straight triangle, delicately incised, only a few skin layers, and a tiny triangle that was pointing at the large one. Whitley notes that odors are a fantastic way to unlock your senses and bring back these memories. He then goes into another memory. He doesn't remember if it was in 1972 or 73. He had previously smelled this odor of smoldering cardboard. Whitley was visiting San Antonio to see his family with Am. He was sleeping in his sister's room and suddenly awoke due to a loud noise that he perceived. And he went to go get some water. As he left the room, he noted the smell of smoldering cardboard again. As he went to go get the water from the bathroom, a strange small dark figure with a red light in his hand dashed from his old room to the downstairs area. He assumed it must have been a family member at the time, but then he notes the small height and ponders why he didn't notice that before. This is too small for a human be being to be. Whitley then goes back again and talks about a sleepover he had with a friend at the age of nine. They were sleeping out, and they found themselves abruptly awake in the middle of the night. And they went exploring the quiet night with an acre of land filled with sunflowers taller than both boys. They then heard someone approaching them. The boy ran, but Whitley stayed for a moment, and then he ran as well. When Whitley arrived back to the sleeping bags, the boy was already asleep. How in a few moments could the boy have done this? That same child had also witnessed something huge another night in the sky with Whitley. Whitley then called his friend, who hadn't spoken to in probably about 25 years, about the two events. Not relating his current events or experiences to the friend. When asked about the first encounter, the, the man theorized that maybe they just ran from a dog. But on the second encounter of seeing the object in the sky, it was strange looking and huge, his friend said, and there was a black car. Whitley then remembered the car. It was black, with the headlights off, and it raced down the road after the object that was in the distance. In 1967, Whitley had a missing time incident that lasted around 24 hours. Whitley had moved into an apartment just the day before, and around noon he sat to eat a TV dinner, when all of a sudden he was confused to discover that the TV dinner that was sitting in his lap had 
somehow jumped or leapt to the coffee table. And it was cold. He got up to reheat it in the oven and noticed it was 2 p.m. now. He assumed that he had fallen asleep while eating it. He put the TV dinner back in the oven for 15 minutes and set a timer. As he turned, he felt woozy, and his mouth felt dry, and all of a sudden the sun was going down now, and his TV dinner was cold again. He had no memory of how the time passed, but became scared and assumed he was having blackouts. He ran to the phone, and as he put his hand on the phone to call for help, all of a sudden it was midnight. Like six hours had passed in less than a second, trying to leave the apartment and thirsty beyond quenchable. He stood over the sink, and running water was filling a full glass, and when we looked at his watch, it was 4.15. As he rushed out, it was pre-dawn outside. He, he saw a display in the sky, and would tell people it was a meteor shower, but it was not meteor shower that occurred was actually from the prior August. He went into an all-night diner, had a huge breakfast with six glasses of orange juice, and two weeks later he was at his grandmother's house visiting. While he was there, he was reading and laying in bed, and he started to relive an experience. He leapt into the car and he backed out of the apartment parking lot. It was night, and it was so dark he couldn't see out of the windows, which forced him to stop. And then something approached the car, with its face pressed almost up against the glass, peering, was something that looked like a demon with a narrow face and black, slanted eyes. It spoke to Whitley in a high-pitched, squeaky voice. Whitley remembers saying he can't just leave the car in the middle of the street. He then found himself in the struggle to keep driving the car away, while fighting the urge to go back to the apartment. Simultaneously, he was struggling while reading his book, the urge to get out of bed and run outside. And then, abruptly, it ended. He believed this was a nightmare memory, to escape whatever unearthly thing happened to him in his apartment. He was so frightened of the awful event, he can only recall the dream, as he put it. A few weeks later, he just wanted to leave Austin, Texas, and he went to London in 1968. In July of 1968, Whitley stayed at a friend's flat, and escaping what he describes as a raid by crossing roofs and the perception of looking into chimneys. Then all of a sudden, blackness. He then woke in his own place and went to Italy for a few weeks. He then train jumped a lot and in Barcelona stayed in a back room of a hotel, filled with fear to lock the door and keep windows closed and the light on. This incident, he had weeks of missing time. He went back to London weeks later than planned. In January of 1980, Whitley and Anne got an apartment. One strange night, they saw a light streak across the sky. Whitley goes on to say that it was faster than a plane, and it, he perceived that it had something to do with him. 
and he had a foreboding feeling. In the middle of the night, his son was crying in his crib. Whitley got up to go check on his son. He walked through the living room to the baby's room to check on him. When all of a sudden he got the impression of a small dark figure dashing to the sliding glass door of the balcony. And all of a sudden, a terrific explosion of glass came from the room. He ran to the baby and followed, turning on the lights as she went. Whitley wanted to see what happened. A seltzer bottle had exploded into beads of glass everywhere with no liquid to be found. Anne cleaned up the mess as Whitley consoled their son. And in 1981, they had an experience with what they call the white thing. One night, Anne woke up screaming. Something poked her in the stomach. She had seen it. It was translucent white and three foot tall. Whitley and Anne both assumed it was a nightmare. The next night at 10, Whitley was reading. Anne turned over to sleep, and all of a sudden, Whitley was struck in the arm. As he turned, he saw a small, pale shape dart down the hallway. He got up to follow, only to see that the hallway was empty. Their son was in bed, so it hadn't been him. A few nights later, his son began to scream, and Whitley ran into the room. The boy was frightened and told Whitley, a little white thing had come up to my bed and poked me. It poked me. Neither Anne nor their son showed signs of injury at all. After Whitley and Dr. Klein reviewed this material, they decided to go fishing in it, as Whitley put it. They tried for a very deep trance this time. We go back again to the memory Whitley had at his grandmother's house in 1967. Whitley says the images were startling real, as if he were there again. Randy was in the other room reading. The rest of the house was dark. Whitley turns his page just staring at an odd ad. God damn, something's buzzing around in here. I'm fighting it. All of a sudden, he puts something on my head like a railroad spike, a silver nail. And I turn into something else. I'm heavy and big. I get up out of the bed. I feel totally different. I feel like I'm moving, like I'm walking through the house. Like I'm a ghost in the house. No, I'm not. I'm still in bed. Oh, it's so peculiar. Because I never moved at all. I get up and I get a glass of water. I'm so scared. I don't know why this happened to me. Try and relax now. Relax, said Dr. Klein. We talked about another time where you thought you saw a meteorite, Dr. Klein said. Yeah. How old are you now? I'm 36. Whitley was hard at work on a new book and he felt pretty good about it. As he looked over the city one night after sunset, he saw a beautiful orange glow. He saw a meteor, like a spark, very tiny. He felt odd, like someone was coming to see him. He told Anne about it, and they went to bed. I love her so much, I can't believe I'm seeing this. 
One, two, three, four, five, six. I look up from my book, and there are six figures standing at the end of the bed, looking at the both of us. She's turned over and she's asleep. I say, Anne, Anne, look at this. They are menacing looking. I don't understand where they even could have come from. They made no sound. I feel like I've got some kind of weight on me. I want to get up. I'm just thinking about my son. I don't know what's going on here. They're just standing there. They don't sing anything. They don't even look like they're alive. Am I seeing things? I closed my eyes. I opened my eyes. It's changed. Now they're around both sides of the bed. About halfway up. Like when you stop looking at them, they start moving. I have lost my mind. This cannot be real. Anne. Anne! I shake Anne. And I don't stop looking at them. They're wearing uniforms. Why in the world won't Anne wake up? It's like I'm in another world. This is a really foul nightmare. Who's standing out there? I get the distinct feeling this place is full of people. Our boy says, oh, and screams out loud, real loud. They pull all right to the foot of the bed, and I get up and running like hell and he's screaming like hell and that praying mantis is standing right in the middle of the living room I ran on into my little boy and he put his arms out I never saw that little boy scream like that before and what the hell was that she comes in and we are holding him the both of us he finally calms down what happened Ann? my god something blew up in the kitchen Whitley goes on saying Anne is working on cleaning up the bottle and that he's cradling his son. All the lights are on. Dr. Klein brings Whitley out of his trance and Whitley notes that the forms in his mind are very real. As he awoke from his regression he felt exhausted and aware of something new in his mind. The impression of being watched. Then he realized why. He was being watched. There was a face staring directly at me. The grave, impeccable, supply, humorous face I had come to recognize from hypnosis. A vivid image of her had appeared in my mind. It was so real, I could almost touch it. I think the image was somehow triggered by the hypnosis. Maybe the intense state of concentration evoked it from my unconscious or maybe I attracted the visitors attention and they responded looking at it was more like looking at a person behind a soundproof glass rather than a picture as I watched the image moved its nose revealing this was obviously a sensitive organ both of touch and smell the mouth was not straight, but rather one of those rich, complex lines that come from a human mouth with the advance of years. Centered in this mouth was a remarkable expression. The outcome it seemed to be of implicable will and mirth. 
There were no lips at all. The chin was strong, very pointed, and a general impression that the skin was stretched over a plated bone structure. But the most interesting part, as Whitley notes, was the eyes. Far larger than our own eyes. In them, I once or twice glimpsed a suggestion of a black iris and pupil, as if there were an optic structure of some kind floating behind those wells of darkness. But this was just a suggestion, as Whitley put it. While the image stayed with him, it remained exactly the same as when he first saw it. He made a complete physical description on tape, and again on March 23rd. He compared the two and it was the exact same image. After his hypnosis with Dr. Klein on March 14th, Whitley sat and pondered again. He wondered what would happen if he asked them to come to him. I sat there looking at it. It looked back at me. The thought hit Whitley that whatever he wrote about the experience would be far more intense with some form of confirmation. The image responded to Whitley with a sharper stare. On Saturday morning, they went to the country. Their son invited a friend and they picked up the child to stay with them for the weekend. Both the son and the child were both seven and they were excited about the weekend together. Before dinner, Whitley went for a walk and saw a hair-thin streak of light come down across the sky. Whitley was disappointed for such a small manifestation. They ate dinner and only a few minutes in and the son's guest said, a little airplane covered with lights just flew through the front yard. The child was distressed and looked at Whitley, who felt like hiding under the table himself, but pulled himself together and told the child there was an air base, air base nearby. He got up, went outside and saw nothing. After dinner, Whitley and Anne went upstairs to talk about the experience a child had seen. This convinced Whitley it must be real, on some level. Why else would this child mention this? The children hadn't heard anything about the visitors, and the little girl had no info on the subject at all. By 9 o'clock, both the children were asleep, and by 10, Whitley and Anne both were in bed as well. During the night, Whitley was awoken abruptly by a jab on his shoulder. He came to full consciousness completely. There were three small people standing beside the bed. Their outlines were clearly visible in the glow of the burglar alarm. They wore blue coveralls and were absolutely still. This was not the fierce, huge-eyed feminine being from before, but rather the dwarf-like ones. Stocky, humanoid gray faces, glittering deep-set eyes. My god, I'm completely conscious and they're just standing there, said Whitley. He thought he could turn on the light, but he describes the sensation of moving like electrified tar. He turned his head, but it was like a sheet of pressure had been draped over him. He watched as his hand moved straight toward the switch, with a light 
clicked it, but there was nothing. And he clicked it again, and there was nothing. The electricity was off, but the, bur the burglar alarm was still on due to a backup battery. Somehow, they got in without tripping it. He turned his head to see something odd. And so strange, he thought about how to put it in the book. It was a being beside the bed, two feet from his face. A version of the thin ones, or the ones he calls her. But it wasn't quite right. It big round button eyes rather than slanted. A cardboard imitation of a double-breasted suit, complete with a white triangle handkerchief in the pocket. He was in fear, but he rationalized that, that in that moment he had to he had called them there and had to initiate contact somehow. He was still functional and independent of his own thoughts. And he felt a responsibility for communication as an emissary of sorts. He tried his hardest and he cracked a smile and instantly it changed. They dashed away. But Whitley was immediately plunged back into sleep. They announced themselves to Whitley and allowed him to remember this experience and full recollection of the other ones he had uncovered from before. This was the end of the communion experiences. Now, in my personal opinion, is Whitley making it up? Now, I covered a little bit of that last week, and I have to say no. At least not with this book. I believe communion is 100% genuine. I think, as you read it, you see a man coming to terms with this phenomenon. A good example of this is the oddities behind it. And what I mean by that is we have a man who is jumping around in his timeline. Now that part really irritates people. I was looking up some of the reviews just to see what other people thought of communion. And the two main points that people bring up is he's a sci-fi writer or a horror thriller writer, or at least was and that his book jumps all over the place and it's pretty evident you can see that he goes from December to October back to December to another timeline to another timeline and that confuses a lot of people now if you're not familiar with abductions this is going to seem really odd to you you would think to yourself why wouldn't he just put this in chronological order well, simply because Whitley is reliving it, and as he's reliving it and examining his memories, he's relating that back. So they're not in chronological order. If he was going to make a book up, you would think he would put it in chronological order and maybe leave certain things out that people aren't going to believe, like seeing Mr. Peanut, or perhaps an anal probe that he was made fun of for. Now, others may look at this, and also argue, well, 
The story's too ridiculous. Well, really, that's debatable. This is the abduction phenomenon. If you're just looking for a thriller book, get on Amazon and find one. Don't go looking to somebody's true accounts and then start bagging them saying they're full of shit. Unless you can come up with conclusive evidence that Whitley Strieber is full of shit, I think it's a little disingenuous to say so. Now you find that in his book, Communion, even now some of his theories from then hold up still. For example, he still believes that there is a strong connection with the dead. He theorized that in this book. Me personally, I would disagree with that and I haven't seen enough evidence of that. In fact, what I've seen is quite the contrary. But I digress. Another thing that makes his story more genuine is the fact that after he went to his regression sessions, it overwhelmed him. He wanted to study, research, figure everything he could out to figure out whether this was happening or not. If he was crazy, he started trying to write it off himself, which is what you're supposed to do as a researcher. And then he does exactly what I do. You go and you read everything you can. You start to tear it apart. You start to theorize. Also, good indications of what a researcher should do. Now, for those up in psychology, you also notice that Whitley suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. It's very evident. He talks about, much like Debbie Cobble in the interview I did with her, the eyes being stuck in your head almost. For instance, when Debbie Cobble saw the mark on the ground in the backyard, overlaid over that, as she stared at it, was the two black eyes. Whitley Streeper also suffers from something very similar. He talks about the eyes right after the regression and how they were just burned into his mind. Couldn't get him out of his head hearkening back to Barney Hill as well. During his regression tape, if you listen to it, the eyes were what bothered him. Now there is another aspect that I thought I would mention in this. And again, it comes down to perceptions. So looking at the Seltzer explosion, with no context to it, if you were in that scenario, one could possibly say that that seemed like a poltergeist experience. Through regression, he realized that it wasn't. The same thing can be said with this white thing that touched them while they were sleeping. That may seem like a spirit or a ghost or something like that, and some would perceive it that way. 
So again, rather than linking all of this all in one, perhaps it's important to take a step back and view it a different way. Because those two conclusions could very clearly be made in those incidents. So if you have these thoughts as an abductee that perhaps there's a poltergeist experience, try to take a step back and take a look at that. Because it very well could be something else that seems like a poltergeist experience. Now, Whitley's case is extremely odd. He's got, for example, the incident right there at the end. With the gray, but had round eyes, which I've heard before, instead of the slanted longer ones. And the double-breasted suit that looked like it was made out of cardboard. Now, if you're going to make up a story, I feel like he probably could have done a little better than that. The guy wrote Day After Tomorrow, Wolfen, The Hunger, tons of imaginary stuff that was super good. And he couldn't come up with something better. Now, as I've mentioned before, the Praying Mantis one is another thing. And as you know from my research, that is something that stands out to me in particular. Because once I hear Praying Mantis, it draws my attention in. And in his account with Anne, and the seltzer bottle exploding, it was a fleeting thought. Now, if he was making it up, he could have just simply said, like, it chased me around, or gone into other things. And there were a couple other accounts in there, where I thought, okay, that could be sleep paralysis, because he wasn't able to move. But then he was able to move in each of those incidents. So that writes off sleep paralysis. And Whitley does a good job of trying to debunk himself at the same time in the sense of he's logically looking at this and trying to come up with some kind of solution. Is he crazy? Is it actually happening? And from the work of John Mack, you find that that is actually the case. A lot of people go through this same process. And it's not just John Mack, but Bud Hopkins, Dr. David Jacob. A lot of different people. Whitley Strieber, indeed, has odd experiences in this book that I find completely valid and fit the abduction scenario. Now, one of the parts I left out was Anne Strieber's hypnotic regressions. They validated Whitley's. That was at the very end of the book. And they went through somebody else other than Dr. Klein to make sure that it wasn't muddied up or that he had related these things to her so she's reliving them. They went to a separate hypnotist to try to get a little more validation. Now, in my opinion, again, going through the abduction research as I have, I find that this is a very valid case. His other books and theories I will not speak upon. But communion is definitely genuine. 
Another interesting fact, before I end this out, is Whitley was originally going to call this book Body Terrors, but Anne told him communion would probably be better because he was having a communion with them. Some of the fright that Whitley faces in this book and his speculations. You'll hear some people quote it and say that these are demons. Whitley doesn't agree with that, and nor do I, which is why in the last episode I included that short little clip of him talking with Art Bell. In the book Experiencer 2, Two Worlds Collide, by William J. Konskoleski, he goes into detail about a room that was similar to the one Whitley Strieber spoke about, this operation theater with rows of seats up top that the greys could look down upon you on. He had an experience with a hybrid that he named Angel. And I think we're going to cover this book. Maybe even have him on. I'm going to try to get him on. But I'll give you a couple lines from it. Two years later, I woke to find myself on board, standing in the room. I've come to know as the activity room. It's a large, empty, metallic-looking round room with a high ceiling. An observation suit. Looks down on the room from one side. Please excuse me, I know I called it a suit, it's sweet. And they stood and they watched this man have this interaction with a hybrid that he named Angel. Now while this only slightly pertains to Whitley Schreiber, I find it that much more of validation for him. If you're an abductee, and you need somebody to talk to, feel free to message me at theufosyahoo.com, and I will talk to you. Or I will put you in contact with somebody who can help you. It doesn't have to be shared on my podcast. I'm just looking to help people with the contact experience, because I know it's not always the greatest. So if you need that help, please reach out to me. I'm here to help you. That's the whole point of these podcasts. You can reach out to people like me, Preston Dennett, Debbie Cobble, many others. If you're needing help, please reach out. You will not be ridiculed by us. And I want to thank you. So here's what I'm going to do. Every couple weeks, I'm going to post Dr. Carla Turner's lectures so they can be more widely accessible and everybody can hear them for themselves and kind of get the Turner thesis that I go with. I think her work should be preserved. And I own 
her lectures on DVD because the one thing I worry about is that whoever has them on YouTube, they get deleted. Or you can find them on the one podcast, which is Hidden Experience Podcast with Mike Cleland. I've had them downloaded since 2013. So you can find them there, but I want to preserve them on here. So along with my, you know, every other week podcast, I'm going to upload some of those too. Because her work is very important and needs to not be forgotten. Now that being said, I'm going to make an episode of its own of just the Turner thesis alone. It might even be the one right after Communion. So keep that in mind and keep a look for it. And I'm going to give a couple examples of the Turner thesis that people haven't connected the dots on before. An example of this would be like the Pascagoula case or the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins. And we're going to take a deeper dive into the Turner thesis on an episode all of its own just quick cases you're not going to hear me reading off everything about them but I wish to demonstrate better the Turner thesis alright guys with that I'm going to end it here I want to thank the ghoulies again for hot rods from outer space badass band go ahead and check their stuff out like them share their stuff on Facebook get them out there. I want to thank you all for joining me. I want to ask you to please like and share my stuff. I want to get a little more out there. If you'd like to appear on the podcast, share your UFO stories, maybe your experience, or you just want to talk to me in general, just hit me up at theufos at yahoo.com or get on my Facebook page and hit me up on there. In a few weeks, we're going to have Kathleen Martin on. Talk about the Betty and Barbie Pearl Productions and kind of clear things up from the first couple episodes. Because I don't feel like I did it justice. So I want to thank you guys again. I ask that you please share and like my stuff. And just remember that the UFOs want to tell you something. Alright guys, keep kicking it.